Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations with Calvin We the Species. It's a, a Friday afternoon, uh, the 24th of March, just to be chronological. Uh, I, I've been talking to Dr. Greta Euling. Uh, we talked last week. We've been talking for um, a bit now. Uh, I've been so anticipating and looking forward to this for so many reasons. Uh, first, uh, I, I have to say uh, she's the author of a February a February published book called Everyday War, the Conflict Over Donbass, Ukraine. We're going to be talking a lot about the Ukraine and things that we've never considered here in the United States of what's going on there. Greta uh, uh, Euling, uh, I... I I don't want to embarrass you or make you blush, but I've, I've got about 12 pages here of your accomplishments that I plunged through. Um, in addition to being a professor at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, uh, as we speak, uh, in the U of P, uh, you, you've got a degree in ethnology, which I'm going to ask you what it is in a few minutes. Uh, your publications are endless. Uh, um the migration studies. This, this, by the way, I could grab on and and we can just talk for hours and hours, which we can't. <laughs> but I had so many things as I've plunged through your accomplishments. It, it's the articles, the book chapters, uh, the service that you've done, um, human trafficking, international perspective. We were just talking about that before you we went on air. Uh, uh, your invited talks. So uh, anyway, uh, I'm I'm deeply honored that you're here to spend some time. Uh, I also have to thank we. I have to thank Nanda Disu from Coriolis Public Relations out in California. Uh, Nanda's this great facilitator and bringer and who brings people together and brought us together. Uh, and Nanda's been indispensable for me as I grow conversation with Calvin. So I needed to uh, thank her. We need to, to thank her. So uh, that's the background. We're going to be talking and digesting everyday war conflict over Donbass and Ukraine and, and things that none of us, certainly uh, I've never even considered. And I don't like to think I'm semi-worldly outside of the world of football and basketball. So I, I'm done with the monologue and and Greta again thank you for being here um I guess a little bio background whatever you want to say let's let's do it yeah absolutely um thanks for having me it's really great to be here today um I'm a cultural anthropologist um I study forced migration um, and the experiences of war and conflict, teach for the program in international and comparative studies at the University of Michigan. Um, and I think that, you know, it's it's always interesting how people arrive at their career trajectory. Um, and I, um, in order to write this book, you know, I, I went to Ukraine, I did a lot, of, I did 150 interviews in Ukraine over a three year period. And so, a lot of people ask me, well, how did I get there? And how did I, how, how did I get inspired to do that? And, you know, I grew up in this very diverse neighborhood in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and it was near the University of Wisconsin um, where my parents worked. And, you know, students from all over the world sat next to me in the classroom. 
And they were really, you know, those are my friends. And I think I became, as a result of that experience, very comfortable with um, going off to do research because I, I kind of learned to feel at home when I was away from home. Um, and that really facilitated my research in Ukraine, which, you know, at one time went for a year and a half. Um, for this latest book, it was it was um, smaller chunks of a few months uh, time each. But then um, my first job when I graduated from uh, when I got my undergraduate degree was actually as a job developer for refugees. And in addition to really enabling me to um, enhance my language skills, it gave me a very deep familiarity with what it's like um, to be a refugee. I was a job developer here in the United States. Basically, it was my job to help refugees find jobs um, with all that that entails. And so that was another really key inspiration that uh, got me started into an academic career in anthropology. Um, I considered getting a master's degree in international relations because I really admire the work that public servants do and that the work that policymakers do. But I think what most attracted me to become an academic was the freedom and creativity of deciding the questions to ask um, and do uh, original research. And so that's what got me interested in anthropology and I've never really looked back. I've always really um, enjoyed it. I, I, I have to interject something for the listeners about everyday war, the conflict of it. Uh, I, I've been reading it and, and I've been taking notes, as I mentioned to Greta. Uh, uh, it, it, this is, uh, I think it's critical reading for all of us because it, it takes us away from, uh, it, 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 it deals with, as one of the, we'll talk about it later, I mean, even uh, smuggling insulin for children. There's so many different aspects about relationships and things that were important that I would never consider. So this is really, it's in the headlines every day. I, I Again, I'm, I'm not just saying this, but I do believe this is kind of critical reading for all of us. It's fascinating reading, things that we would never consider. Uh, and it's important reading to bring us up to date because this is our lives. We're all intimately involved in this whole thing. So, uh, you, you know, this is not, by the way, I don't even, I, don't, I it's not an academic. It, it's really, uh, uh, yes, it's academic, but it's it's life, mm -hmm. and it's and it's written in such a way that it kind of reaches out and 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 embraces and and holds you and makes you think things that you'd never think about. But it's always it's, it's great reading, and, and I'm enjoying it. And when I take notes, that's even more demonstrative of uh, how much I'm liking something because uh, my notes my notes last um what is anthropology and and also one of your studies is ethnology if you could define that yeah most people don't really have a uh idea what what anthropology is, but, um, and, and in, in the United States, there's a lot of different kinds of anthropology, but I'm a cultural anthropologist. Um, and that just means that I 
um, study living humans to explore present day cultures. Um, and I think one of the ways that I like to think about it is anthropology is the, it's really the art of stepping inside other people's worlds to experience them from within through stories and experiences. And really the beauty of anthropology is that it affords you a way to do that. Um, it's all about kind of, you know, mobilizing that transferable skill of empathic listening so that you can um, let go of your preconceptions and listen to what it is that people have to say with the goal of, of uh, surfacing stories that might otherwise not be heard. Okay. It's just uh, about learning through experiences and, and um, stories. And, you know, I mentioned my, you know, my kindergarten experience, you know, anthropology basically operationalized that into a career. I get to go home with people and listen to the stories that they tell me about their lives. And I try to listen as, as carefully as I can. I guess the other part of anthropology is that um, it's, it's sort of halfway between the social sciences and the humanities. Um, it's the most humanistic social science. Um, and it's also the most, um, you know, from within the humanities, it's kind of social scientific. But my particular approach um, is a, sort of about situated knowledge. It doesn't, it's about like who you are in the, in the environment is part of the story. Um, probably, probably the best example of that is, you know, I, I went to a, a little workshop when I was in Southern Ukraine and with people who had been displaced from the war. And um, when a young man learned that I was from the Detroit area, he was dying to talk to me. And I, so after the workshop was over, we sat down at a picnic table and started to chat. And we just got into the most fascinating conversation about his experience in Donbass. And it, it turned out that the reason that he wanted to talk to me was that the Cadillac Eldorado, which is manufactured in uh, Michigan, is his favorite car. And so we connected over the Cadillac Eldorado, but it just went from there. Wow. Um, a, a lot of folks, including myself, until I plunged into, you know, thinks that this war is a little over a year old. Uh, it ain't. And, and we're going back to 2013, 2014 when the Ukraine was leaning towards the West, as I'm reading, uh, uh, that began to foment uh, difficulties, uh, political. And, and so this is, this has been going on a long time. We just think it's a year, but it ain't. Um, anyway, your newest book, Everyday War, the, the conflict over Donbass, Ukraine, this came out February 15th. So uh, the journey to to write this, uh, uh, your journey to compiling it, and and uh, um, other things that you wanted to cover in this. So a little exploration uh, of your writing of this. 
it was a long yeah 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 absolutely so um back in 2014 i was awarded a fulbright scholar grant to do research in ukraine um, and that afforded me the opportunity to spend three summers in ukraine where I interviewed about 150 people, as I mentioned. Um, and then um, I embarked on the, you know, the analysis of those interview transcripts. Um, I also did what's called participant observation. And that just means that, you know, you hang out with people, you live with them, you talk to them, you share meals, you go on day trips, you get to know them and their lives. Um, so it was a combination of living there and carrying out these interviews um, that enabled me to write Everyday War, um, which was published in February um, with Cornell University Press. Okay. Uh, what does the title Everyday War mean? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the book explores the subjective experience of civilians. And what I mean by uh, by everyday war is the very conscious and creative ways that non-combatant civilians responded to the war that was going on around them. And there's really two manifestations. One is action. Alexandra is a perfect example of that because she ended up uh, dropping out of university to supply her father with the equipment that he needed for his position as a sniper. And she, because she had to raise funds for this equipment that he that he needed, she knew that he was going to kill their former neighbors and friends. That's everyday war because it blurs this distinction between who is a civilian and who is a combatant and it's different than war itself because Alexandra was motivated by her caring connection to her father, right? It was his survival that was paramount. Um, and it's really about uh, preserving those human connections. Um, so um, engaging in the conflict through action is one dimension of everyday war. And a second dimension of everyday war has to do with this um, experience on the part of many people in Ukraine right now that um, the war doesn't really stop at the front door, right? It's so intense that it has a way of affecting people's relationships to one another. And so in the instances when people find that they're on opposite uh, political sides, that too is an everyday kind of war. There's another term that I pulled out, uh, everyday ethics. Mm -hmm. And what is that? Yeah, so everyday ethics basically just refers to these civilians' moral thinking about human vulnerability and um, in, in, in situations when they can't really rely on established rules or formal principles. You know, when we think about uh, Western philosophy, we think of this, 
mm, we think of like the morality that's written about it as like justice ethics, right? That's been set down over the ages. But in Ukraine, people really had to think carefully um, about what was right to do in situations that um, they'd never encountered before. And in a situation in which um, there were violations of international humanitarian law going on all around them. I mean, in this situation, people demonstrated levels of care for one another that they themselves characterized as unprecedented. Perhaps the best example would be uh, Taurus. Um, Taurus came out of retirement um, pretty early on in the conflict to help the military by retrieving soldiers. Now, in the beginning, the Ukrainian military did not have the capacity to retrieve many of the fallen soldiers. And so Taurus um, took small groups of people into Russian-held territory, driving on mined roads, negotiating with people who were armed, um, living in the forest in order to wow. both bring dignity to the people that were, you know, abandoned in fields across Ukraine, but also to provide the bereaved with peace of mind. And I was, you know, I, I got to know Taurus quite well. And I asked him, Taurus, why did you, why did you risk your life to, to do this task that you didn't have to do? And he said, because he wanted to bring people peace of mind. He knew he couldn't bring about geopolitical peace, but he knew that he, through these gestures, could contribute to his country um, and his country's future by these, with these operations. And he's still doing that, by the way, because now, even though the military um, has become so much more Effective. capable the, the the scale of the you know the mass graves that you've probably heard about on the news like the scale of the um excavations that need to be done are so large that um they're still doing this this very valuable work and and they're doing it you know on a volunteer basis oftentimes with tools that they bring from home it's, yeah, I listen. I, I I listen to you, and it's um, it's it, it's so hard to pound into. You know, we're all sheltered here from from that. Uh, it, it's so emotional to listen to this and try to comprehend it. Um, I, I'm I'm forever changed from all the two years of, of COVID I spent watching um, documentary in World War II and the Holocaust and the atrocities and, and everything about World War II uh, and, and the images and I think I've seen about every documentary there is because I had two years to do it uh, and I'm forever changed from what I watched um, which is a segue into my next question 
sort of. Um, uh, it, it sounds like civilians' uh, priorities and values have, have changed uh, as a result uh, of the war, and, and uh, obviously they have. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to continue with Taurus, um, people's desire to contribute to the humanitarian response often met, meant um, foregoing, you know, long-held family rituals of meals together. And so oftentimes people had to, um, priorities were continually shifting and people always had to make consequential choices about where they directed their effort. So as one woman put it to me rhetorically, um, should I should I go cook at the shelter for the internally displaced uh, or should I cook for my family in our home? All over Ukraine, people were making very consequential choices. In the case of Alexandra, it had to do both with her future university career, but also it was about her her father's survival. In the case of Taurus, it was about the dignity of the dead and the peace of mind of the bereaved. But there were also sort of these um, very important uh, relational elements that um, that I studied, which had to do also with priorities. And perhaps um, a woman named Mirabel that I that I interviewed. Um, describes it the best because um, she she divorced as a result of the war. And the way that she explained it to me was that, you know, she decided that she had to get her parents out of the war zone. Her uh, husband, and they were newlyweds, decided that his priority was to stay there with his parents who did not want to leave. And so she said, you know, I wanted to get my parents out. He didn't. Um, and so I've, I had to, I had to choose now in an ordinary peaceful um, society, those two things would never come into conflict, right? It would never become a choice, but in a war like the one on Ukraine, those are choices and, and people had to um, strategize around that. And I think a good way to think about it is that with the war in Ukraine, the country is experiencing two interrelated crises. One is the geopolitical crisis, right? That they have to fight for their survival as a country militarily. But there's also an interpersonal crisis in the sense that the conflict between uh, between Russia and Ukraine is enacted um, at a much smaller level of you know international relations, if you will, inside homes. And so it's really two interconnected crises. Wow. We could talk about that. On and on. Um, before I met you, uh, I, I I'm so aware of all this, and and as I read and and, and I I found 
pictures that kind of moved me. So I I did a screenshot and but it was a mother, a Ukrainian mother with her three small children living in Poland in a dorm room. And the looks of the children's faces, there were some smiles there in the mother. Uh, and, and that just, and I saved it. And from time to time, I, I look at it. it it's kind of like a slap on the face. Um, this is their new, this is their reality. And, and this is, uh, so it moved me, which segues for me to uh, ask you about. Uh, and I know that we talked about this before, uh, just this morning, there, there was a thing. Um, just this morning, there was a, a thing on the news about Russia kidnapping young Ukrainian children, take them over to the other side for indoctrination and for whatever else, which also helped to precipitate, you know, the war crimes thing against Putin. But horrible. So the question, Greta, is uh, the children of Ukraine? Um, what about the fate of these children? And um, some children lost limbs. I mean, the whole package. Are we taking a whole generation of young, vibrant, beautiful children? What are we doing to it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Calvin, I really think this is one of the most um, tragic dimensions of the war on Ukraine is precisely the children. So my friend Carrillo put it succinctly to me when he said, children in Ukraine learn to find their way to the bomb shelter before they learn their way to find, learn how to find their way to school. They learn the caliber of military weaponry before they learn to read. And this is a terrible knowledge for children to have. It's not appropriate to their age it doesn't facilitate their development. And I think it's clear that the world will need to deal with the humanitarian consequences of the children you know, growing up in this, envi this terrible environment. I think that that's, um, you know, and of course the, you mentioned the the there's an arrest warrant for Putin on the basis of not preventing these children from being removed from the territory of Ukraine. And I think that while it will take a really long time for those wheels of justice to turn, uh, it's a positive development in the sense that the international community is recognizing that this is a classic, strategy for genocide, right? If you if you can't kill every last person in the country, you can prevent them from reproducing their culture and raising their children to be Ukrainian, right? Mm -hmm. You see how diabolical it is, right? If you disrupt that process of mm -hmm. socialization, cultural transmission, uh, language learning, all of those components, if you can disrupt that for a generation, you've, 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 you know, irrevocably um, harmed a country. Coincidentally, slightly off topic, I, I sent you, uh, just two nights ago, I interviewed uh, this uh, AI uh, animation uh, artist in California, but he also started this thing called the Goodness Tour. And coincidentally, 
they had gone, uh, they, they want to bring music and art to places that need it uh, in, in, in really adverse conditions. So they went to, to Poland uh, and to Ukraine. They painted murals and they did some music. And I, I watched it a couple of times, but you see the, the face of a, a Ukrainian boy playing a guitar. And and there was a and, and you know there are bombs bursting around them and it's almost like the Star Spangled Banner, you know, bombs bursting in the air. Uh, but you see a little smile on the face, and I just couldn't help but think, what does he have to endure? Um, and there was another piece I saw about you know the, the kids are in they're in school, you know, they're in school and, and bombs are bursting around them and they shudder and they're fearful, and it's just overwhelming for me. Because these things don't leave me so quickly. Mm-hmm. Children, the children, you know, I live with my grandchildren, and I, I see the the miracle uh, every day, the miracle of life, mm. and growth, and 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 I look at my grandson and granddaughter, and, and I know that they're. I, I I see this every. I feel it every day. There's children there that don't have this, and I look at their comfortable, safe world here. And I can't help but think what's going on there. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, you know, I think that that's I think that's really important because, as an anthropologist, one of the ways I think about that is in terms of what's been called crisis ordinariness, which is that with time there is a bit of a normalization of what's going on so that people can create some sense of an everyday life. A perfect example of that is Danilu, who, you know, for years slept in his bathtub because that was the safest place. If the if the windows got bombed out, he knew that he wouldn't you know, get glass shards if he was sleeping in the bathroom. There was four walls around him. But every morning he would get up and he would leave his apartment and he would go repair the infrastructure that was necessary for the internet in his town. And that's a good example of this crisis ordinariness where people in a way, people find ways to adjust and go on with their lives. And so from an anthropological perspective, I guess the other thing that's really important is to realize that how it's experienced can be quite variable, right? Something that's incredibly traumatizing for one person is part of the daily routine for another. So people had a whole range of responses as they tried to cope with this very catastrophic situation. Thank you for that explanation. You know, it, yeah. it helps me deal. Because uh, I, y- yeah. I, I deal with this. I, I, I deal with it. I'm consumed by it. Um, it, it's such a mass of emotion and experience all coming together. Um, and the other question I have um, is we've, we, the world collectively has, has taken this entire generation 
uh, and an awful lot of people from Ukraine and, and have displaced them, i.e. Poland, a couple of million there, whatever. Uh, are we losing, are we going to lose this generation of, of people? Uh, they're not going to go back. I mean, what's going to happen to this displaced uh, anthro anthropologically? What's going to happen to these displaced people? You know, I I mentioned that that Ukraine and the world will be dealing with the humanitarian consequences for the foreseeable future. And even as I say that, I'm very optimistic for the future of Ukraine as a country, because as a result of the war, they have become much more unified than they were in the past. And 97% of Ukrainians believe that they will win the war and they will thrive as a, as a nation and as a country. And I, I take some hope from that because I think that we're witnessing tremendous resilience in people and that that will bear fruit. That isn't to minimize the trauma. That isn't to minimize the damage. That isn't to minimize the pain. It's just to say that Ukrainians are have resolved that they're together in this. And that's a pretty, pretty positive outcome. You know, Calvin, you mentioned, um, you mentioned people missing limbs a few minutes ago and how, you know, when, in the context of these children that not only are there the, the psychological wounds of war, but there are these, these physical wounds that people, people lose limbs and are injured. Um, and when I was doing my research in Ukraine, I got very interested in this because a woman said to me, she said, uh, Greta, this whole country is one big wound. And I, I thought about that so much, right? Like, um, and, and as I would, you know, go on the Metro or walk the streets or take the bus, I started to notice that many people who had lost limbs had not replaced them with prostheses. And I didn't understand that at first because in the United States, it's very rare to see somebody who isn't wearing a prosthesis if they've lost a foot or a leg or an arm. And so I started talking to people about it. And in fact, I even went to a, a, a factory um, that was manufacturing prostheses. And I learned so much from that experience because um, as I started to talk to people and especially veterans, one of the things they explained to me was um, like what, you know, what veterans said to me is that um, Greta, you have to understand that um, we don't like complaining and we're not used to it. So we're not going to complain. Right. And there was this other really amazing element, which was, right. he was saying to me that, um, you know, when uh, after a person loses a limb um, and they perhaps they're sleeping on a in a tent, they're close to the front, 
from the outside that looks pretty bleak but what he told me at least from his perspective was they are so happy just to see another day with that when they wake up in the morning that's what counts and missing a hand or missing a leg not good but it's secondary to just having your life wow is that powerful wow put people through that wow well they're an amazing people um the more i'm listening and reading um quite an amazing people another good segue so um what caused this war and uh uh and i had asked you this i think last week uh is, is some of this residue fallout from world war ii post-world war ii and the way things were post-world war ii is some of those feelings and and mindsets uh maybe on the part of russians yeah, that's the question. Uh, I keep thinking about that. What causes this? I, I try to be open-minded and try to understand both sides. Uh, um, you know, um, I, I'm not an expert, far from it, but you know, I observe things. So, just to, if you have a thought on that, um, yeah, I, I'm um, absolutely. You know, it's multi-causal. I mean. Perhaps the biggest shift took place uh, between Russia and Ukraine after the revolution in Ukraine that happened between 2013 and 2014, which was about Ukrainians essentially trying to decide whether their country was going to seek greater rapprochement with the European Union with all that represented culturally, trade, diplomatic, or were they, were they going to maintain these very close ties with Russia? Um, and that was really the first sort of seed of war. Um, you know, people in the Eastern regions where the fighting first broke out disagreed about that. Some of them were in favor of what people were saying in Kiev, which was pursue that European direction. Others saw their economic future, if nothing else, in continued trade with Russia. Um, and those are the people that won out in the first few years of the war because of course they were uh, backed by, uh, by, backed by, by Russia. Russia sent cadres to infiltrate government structures, um, it was they sent mercenaries to um, help fight off uh, Ukrainians response to that. And but there's also some deeper factors that go into it. You know, the Donbass always had a strong regional identity. Um, there's the geopolitical factor that you mentioned, which is the, you know, the injury on the Russian side from you know thinking through the greatness of the soviet union um their victory in during world war ii which in uh russia is referred to as the great patriotic war so it it looms large as an emblem of 
success and power and greatness that they aspire to reclaim. So it 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 does enter in. It's yeah. I I I always think about that and 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 the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, and, and I, uh, you know, I, I I I see Reagan, you know, uh, uh, tear down the Gorbachev, tear down that, that wall, and and I know all the things that Reagan. I don't know all the things that Reagan did, but the quiet things, you know, we we the quiet things to kind of hurt the Soviet Union and business. It is what it is. Um, I I often think how we'd react if, if Texas just decided now. You know, they just want to go off on their own. You know, uh, all these things fly through my head. Um, So we've almost come, by the way, Greta, I could talk to you uh, all day about this to to keep learning more and more. Uh, Of course, one of the best ways to learn more and more is for folks to go out and get everyday war. And that's available uh, at Cornell University Press and Amazon.com and I'll have all those links down there. Just one, um, uh, as a, uh, one, we discussed this before we went on air. Um, uh, it, there's so many things you you don't even consider. Uh, in in my note taking, uh, two things, uh, and and I never considered this, but uh, uh, and then you talk about this in 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 in, in the book. Uh, um, and again, I would never, but war can reconfigure intimacy in relationships that you would never consider. So that's one thing just to make a couple of comments on. And the other thing, the last thing, uh, I'm giving you two at once here. Uh, uh, there's a smuggling business uh, of pediatric insulin. I mean, I can't, you know, <laughs> insulin's in the news here because they dropped the price. Uh, finally Eli Lilly out there in the Midwest uh anyway those two thoughts and and then we'll kind of do a wrap okay yeah so let's talk about the insulin um the insulin um supply to Russian controlled territory was disrupted by war and this is a place where in the past, insulin had been free, and it had been um, supplied from you know outside of either Russia or Ukraine. Well, war breaks out, and all of those supply chains are broken. Plus, um, the post breaks down. It's not like you could, there's there's no post to Russian controlled territory. How are you going to get it there? You can't mail it. You can't drive it in because the authorities in that region um, are strictly controlling everything that goes in and everything that goes out into that zone. And and yet, you know, children um, were at risk of losing their lives if they don't get this life-saving medicine. Um, and my friend Carrillo discovered this um, one day when he was visiting in an orphanage and one of the nurses told him about this terrible predicament that the children faced. And it was so terrible that, you know, some of them had perished. Others would be, 
you know, rushed out in ambulances under the cover of night to get the, the care. And Carrillo thought about it and he thought, all right, it's got to be kept cold. What else needs to be kept cold? Dead bodies. It was brilliant. Oh. He worked out an arrangement with oh. the people who, the, the Black Tulip group that was retrieving human remains to bring insulin in when they went on missions into that region to bring the deceased out. And so he rushed out, he bought clean body bags for the insulin. Wow. And, you know, so he would stuff these clean body bags with insulin, wow. slide them into the trucks. And when the uh, local authorities opened the back of the truck to see what was in there, they just picked up on the aroma. They didn't want to unzip those bags. And that was how Carrillo figured out a way to get insulin to the children. And Calvin, I can't tell you how, how moved I was by this story when it, it, it sunk in when Carrillo sent me a link to the people that and the families that had received the insulin. And they all had these smiling faces and they were holding their boxes. And for Carrillo, it was partly about like transparency. He wanted, he wanted everybody to know that he wasn't just selling that insulin on the black market. It was actually reaching its destination of wow. children and families. But it was smiling face, like hundreds and hundreds of people benefited from this operation uh, of of the insulin. And, you know, Carrillo explained it to me in terms of a real shift in values, especially for him. He had been a businessman before, and it, it was all about the bottom line for him before the war. But with the war, his values started to change. And I think that you know that too goes back to what were you what you were saying about the the cause of the the war um and the difference between uh the russian perspective and the ukrainian perspective and and why i have so much hope for ukraine which is that ukraine has really embraced the value of human life and individual human life as being above all else. And I think that that shift in values will also contribute to a really positive future inside that country. To be studied, to be studied further and further and observed and watched how this develops. It, it's, it's, it's just such an interesting phenomenon. Greta, um, I, I can't thank you enough. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure yeah. to talk to you. Uh, what a pleasure uh, yeah. you have illuminated me. Uh, and your your words have illuminated me. You actually brought me into a new place. Um, I don't, a new place. And uh, I'm going to keep reading. Uh, I'm inviting you back. I'm back. Thanks. Before, uh, uh, I sit here 12 hours a day, so I'm, I'm all yours. Uh, I, I, I thank you so much. Again, Everyday War. Uh, uh, people will see it all throughout this uh, interview. Um, I'm going to stop the recording now. Have a wonderful okay. weekend. Don't leave. We're going to do two. Okay. Weeks.
But uh, thank you so much, Greta. Thank you.